Good morning, everyone. We got this little forest of trees behind me. I feel like I want to just go walk in there, you know? It's so fun. We're, uh, it's Christmas season. It's a good time of the year. But uh, now is that time in our service this morning when we open our Bibles. And so you can do that. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today we are finishing this series. It's been such an awesome book. And I want to let you know, as Rob just said, we're going to be taking two Sundays here in December to be giving special one-off messages for Advent, and so you don't want to miss those. And just with the whole Christmas season upon us, we want to be reflecting upon that first coming of Jesus. And then in the new year, what Rob said, we're going to go through 2 Thessalonians. But both of these letters of First and 2 Thessalonians are really instructive about the second coming of Christ, which we just sang in that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And we talked about this last week and how Christ is coming again, and we're going to talk about that t- today. And so in this final chapter here, uh, it's going to speak more about this return of Christ. And then in the latter half of this chapter, we see a series of sort of one-sentence instructions that Paul rattles off And we'll spend some time looking at each one of those here this morning. And so that's our plan here today. Should the Lord tarry? Uh, That word tarry means to delay or to hold back or to to wait. And what we've been learning from the book of 1 Thessalonians is that Jesus can come back at any moment. His coming is imminent is what we say. Yet he hasn't come back yet. He's waited this week, as my friend Jim always says, one week closer. Each day, each moment, really, that passes is another moment closer to the return of Christ. And as I think about that, though, I think about how glad I am that Jesus waited for me. Aren't you glad that Jesus waited for you? And if you're here today, and if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you, he's waiting for you. And that's very much part of the reason for why God has delayed his coming. Because you see, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not desire that anyone would perish apart from him. And that's why he has shown great patience toward us and why he has stayed his coming. Because he wants to save people in this world before he comes back to judge this world. And that gives us a sense of urgency, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of urgency because who do you know that he is still waiting for? And do you know that God is waiting for you to be one who will be a witness to them? You know, we can all think of people in our lives who we'd love to see come to Christ. And for many of you, I know, maybe family members, maybe it's a son or a daughter or even a parent or or just a good friend of yours. and, And you've been praying, you've been praying, you've been praying. For them to come to Christ, I just want to say, don't lose hope. Keep praying, keep witnessing, because as we said, the Lord is patient, and he waited for you, and we can be patient with those who are going to come to him. Amen? Amen. Now, I know that when I went home last week, after hearing about the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, I went home last week believing that Jesus could come back that week. And he didn't, right? By the way, he didn't, okay? <laughs> but as I said, we're one week closer. But, but I know what happened for me, and I, I pray that it 
was the same for you. And I, I pray that as we're going through these letters of First and Second Thessalonians, that would, this would, the reality of the second coming of Christ would be even more imprinted on the forefronts of our hearts and minds. Because when that happens, what takes place is there's a purifying effect that happens in our lives. I would say more than any other truth in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus is one of the most purifying truths of the Bible. Because what it does is it makes us live how we ought to live in light of his coming. Because it tells us that when he comes, we want to be found living for him at his appearing. And so if Jesus waits one more day, or if he waits another thousand years, that does not need to be any source of disappointment for us. Because you see, the Lord promised that, does anyone need a communion cup? Are we good? You good? Okay. I think, let's pass out the communion after. Is that okay? Cool. Perfect. I love it. And, and so if he delays one more day or even a thousand years, it doesn't matter. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't disappoint us because what it tells us is that Jesus can come back at any moment. For him, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And so it doesn't, what, it, what this is meant to do to think about the second coming, it's meant to promote an eager sense of expectation. What it's not meant to do is to promote the idea that God's not keeping up with his promises, that he's somehow slack in the things that he's doing. He is at hand. And I've, I've, I've done this before, I'm going to do it again. Put your hand in front of you. How far is your hand from you? Is it pretty close or pretty far? I, I'd say it's pretty close, right? That's how close the Lord's coming is. It's at hand. It's near to us, and he is coming quickly, and he came once. We know that. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. You know, I just saw a recent survey that, you know, a, a large percentage of, of, of America believes that Jesus did come once. Whether they believe he's God or not, that's a different story, but they believe he came once. Did you know that the Bible speaks twice as much about the second coming of Jesus as his, as his, his first coming, which means that we ought to be doubly aware of this true reality and that we would be prepared for it. And so you could say this, that the degree to which we are prepared for the return of Jesus has a direct correlation to if we are living for him today, if we are abiding in the salvation and the blessing that his first coming accomplished for us. All right, so this Thessalonian church, that originally received this letter and received the gospel message. And I just feel, you know, if we're talking about the second coming, I want to talk briefly about the first coming, just in case you're not aware, is that Jesus came once to this world. He came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and Jesus lived a perfect and complete life, having never sinned. And that's not something that we can say about ourselves, no one can say that we have never sinned, but that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to be the mediator between God and man, and when he died on a cross, he removed the very thing that separates us from God, which is our sin. And so Jesus dealt with our sin so that we can now come boldly to God and to receive his grace. And so when Paul told them about this Jesus, he told them about how he was born and how he lived and how he died and how he was buried and how three days later he rose 
from the dead. And that is the gospel. But that's not where it stops. He told them how 40 days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Or, no, he rose from the dead. Three days later, 40 days after that, he ascended to heaven. Ten days after that, the Holy Spirit came upon the church came upon 120 believers that were gathered in a room, and then Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people believed that message that Peter preached, and they were saved. And the amazing thing about that first sermon that was preached in the church is that it included preaching on the second coming. And Paul didn't stop the message there, you see. He told them that in the same manner that Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, that in like manner he's going to come in the clouds and he's going to meet all who have believed in him, both the living and the dead, in the air, and so we will be with the Lord always. You know, they watched as Jesus ascended into heaven, and from the very first days of the church, they had an eager expectation that Jesus could come back. A week into the church, they believed he could have come back. A year into the church, they believed he could have come back. A decade, a century, and now two millennia later, he can still come back. And his promises have never changed about that. And so the last verse of chapter 4, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. And so I pray, I pray that you've been encouraged just this morning talking a little bit about the second coming I'm going to say with the Apostle John, I'm going to say with what we sang this morning, Lord Jesus, come, right? Maranatha. And so I pray that you be encouraged as we now look in the word at verse 1 of chapter 5 where it says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul's saying concerning the times and the seasons, which has to do with the details of the second coming of Christ, the things that are revealed to us and taught to us in Scripture about the last days and about the return of Jesus. He says to them, you have no need to have anything written to you. And I read that and I'm kind of like, um, Paul, thank you very much, but, but I wouldn't mind a few more things written about the times and seasons of the second coming of Jesus. But then I think about the Bible, And I think about how it has everything that we need to know from the Holy Spirit that he wanted to give us. Nothing more and nothing less. I like to say, you've heard me say before, that the Bible has everything in it that we need to know about God and everything that we need to know about ourselves. It is sufficient for a life of faith with God. And so we have here in our Bibles all that we need written for the times and the seasons of God. In the Bible, we have the prophecies that were given to the prophet Daniel of the last days. In the Bible, we have the revelation that was given to John as he was in exile on the island of Patmos, the last book of your Bible. If you haven't read it, it's a good one. We have the teachings of the apostles like James and Peter and Paul. We have the words of Jesus himself, whole sections in the Gospels like the Olivet Discourse. And the parables that Jesus taught about his second coming. We have all that we need to know about what God wants us to know about the coming of Christ in the times and the seasons that are associated with that glorious occasion. But, but then why do we have people 
who have differing understandings about these things. I've had conversations this week with several people here in the church where, you know, last week I talked about the rapture of the church and there's this question like, what's the timing of things and is this all going to take place? And you seem to have sort of this laid out in your mind. And I told you last week that I was going to give you a little bit more of how I see this all playing out. But I just want to let you know that, that there's differing views, there's differing interpretations about the second coming of Christ and the nature of the times and seasons and how it's all going to play out. And I just want to let you know that we all agree the second coming of Christ will happen. Amen? If we're believers in Christ, we, will, we know it's happening. But the times and the seasons, the, you could say the timeline of it, varies in interpretation. But this is what I believe, for whatever it's worth. I believe in a rapture that will happen before a seven-year tribulation, a time that the church will not participate in. And after those seven years, we will come with Christ and establish where he will establish his rightful and peaceful reign in a millennial kingdom. That is a time where Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. And then after those 1,000 years, Satan will be released and he will stir up a rebellion against Christ. But his end will be the lake of fire along with all those who have rejected Christ. And then Jesus will bring the new heavens and the new earth. And then on and on for all of eternity we go with Jesus. And there will be no more need for the sun or the moon because Jesus will be our light. And God will be with his people forever and ever. Amen. That's a little bit about what I believe. So what's the best way? For us to know these things. Well, I think about what John said. He said something similar to what Paul says here in verse 1 about not needing to have anything written to you. Look at this verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it was taught you, abide in him. So today, I'm going to teach on some of the times and the seasons of the last days, but I want you to know the best way for you to be learning about these things, because spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot understand spiritual things because they must be spiritually discerned, which is why any person who is going to come to the Bible to understand the things of God must have the Spirit of God, amen? Amen. So the best way for you to learn about these things is that you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit spend some time together. Read the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. That's why in verse 2, Paul says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Do you see that? He said, you yourselves need to be fully aware of the day of the Lord. It's not enough that your pastor is fully aware. It's not enough that your spouse is fully aware. It's not enough that your parents or your friends or anyone else is fully aware of the second coming of Christ. You yourself must be fully aware of the coming of Jesus, which is called here the day of the Lord 
And Paul said that that day will come like a thief in the night. Are you fully aware of that? And, and so I have my understanding of scriptures about the day of the Lord, and I'm fully aware of, of what God will do, as far as I believe, with my Bible and as the Holy Spirit has taught me. And so I'm going to share a few things about my expectations and, and some stories and personal experiences that might help you understand these things more. But I just want to say, church, concerning the second coming of Jesus, you need to be fully aware. Amen? Amen. So do you know, every individual here, do you know that the Lord will come like a thief in the night? Almost every New Testament writer uses that imagery because they heard it from Jesus. This is what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, which is a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples on a mountain in just right there in Jerusalem about the times and the seasons of his coming. And he says this in Matthew chapter 24, Verses 36 to 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen, or you've ever had a thief break into your house. How many people have ever had a home invasion? Wow, quite a, quite a few of us. Uh, yeah, so I once had my car stolen, and, and, and it was stolen that probably was the worst possible time. I discovered that my car had been stolen when I went out to get my car to take my wife, who was 42 weeks pregnant as she was going into labor. Awful. <laughs> First child, too. I was freaking out. It's happening. Oh my, where's my car? And I've told this story before, and I think it's worth repeating because it's hilarious. And I think it illustrates what Paul is saying here about Jesus coming like a thief in the night. I did not expect to have my car stolen, especially not when my wife was going into labor. And the amazing thing is that this story serves as a double illustration because look at the next verse, verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. <laughs> the Lord used that moment in my life to teach me something. And so this moment, this, this experience I had goes right in line with what we read Jesus saying, that, that as people are going about their lives, particularly 
non-believers, people who aren't expectant of Christ. People will say that there's peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains and they will not escape. In the same way that I didn't expect a thief to steal my car at night, we will, or that I didn't expect my wife to go into labor at the same time, you know, these things happen suddenly. Labor happens suddenly. One moment you're drinking tea and next moment things get gnarly, right? You, you understand that. And, and it intensifies and it grows and it gets closer and closer together. And, and so what's this telling us? Is it just telling us we're not able to know any of this at all? Well, in one sense, you can't know exactly when a thief comes or when labor comes, but we can be prepared for such things. I was talking to a, a couple in our church, one of the guys yesterday, he's going to be a first-time dad here soon, and, and the question is, are your bags packed? Are you ready to go? You know, because you know that, that something's going to happen. And so, yes, it will be sudden for all, but not all will be caught off guard. For one who has been paying attention to the times and season, we're not going to be caught off guard. For the one who is awake and watching, we'll be glad when he comes. For the one who knows that the earth is pregnant for the coming of Jesus, we will be delighted to see him. For we will be met with the Lord and there will be reception and joy and not terror for those who believe. And that's why it says in verses 4 and 5, But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So Jesus taught in parables, several parables that you need to go and you need to read with the Holy Spirit and ask God to reveal these things to you. Jesus talks about a master returning to see the work that he has entrusted to stewards. Jesus talks about a homeowner and how there's a thief that comes into the night, but if the homeowner's awake and watching, he's ready. Jesus talks about a master who comes to find both good and wicked servants. Jesus talks about a bridegroom coming for a wedding celebration. So get your Bible and open it and find these parables of Jesus and read them and ask God to teach you them. Because these teachings give us revelation. They give us the light of the knowledge that Jesus is coming. And if you are a brother or a sister in Christ, then you have this knowledge. You are not in darkness. So the day of the Lord will not surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. You know, I was thinking about this, how to illustrate it. It'd be like, you know, when I, if I were to go into my kid's bedroom in the middle of the night and turn on the light, they'd be like, Dad, what are you doing, right? But, but they'd see me and they'd know me and they'd know who I am. And it w there wouldn't be anything scary about that. But if a stranger were to come into my children's rooms in the middle of the night and flip on the lights, what would their reaction be? Dad. Do you know who's coming, on, coming home <laughs> to flip on the lights? And when you see him, will you be glad? See, we are not of the night or darkness. There, there's this good technology. It's called motion sensor lighting. Maybe you have it on your house. All those people who raise their hands that they've had home invasions, you might want to get this. 
you know, if you have a security light at your house, and, and you belong to the house, you live in the house, you're of the family, you, you walk and the light comes on and the light is safety. It's like, oh, this is my house. But if you're a thief of the house, you're not of the family, and you walk and the light comes on, light exposes. And there's a difference of that. So where are you as it pertains to light and darkness? See, this teaches us how we are to be prepared, that we, we do not need to be caught off guard. No one knows the exact hour that a thief will come, but people can live with a general sense of preparation against thieves. And, and living with the lights on, if you could say, is a good way to live with preparedness. So I like that idea. Church, let's live with the lights on. And now in verses 6 through 8, it says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So these are all words associated with a watching Christian who has an eager expectation for the coming of Christ. If we know that it can happen at any moment, like a thief in the night, well, then we will conduct ourselves in a certain way, right? We will have a proper fear of the Lord. Now, the thief and the labor has been used as two illustrations for the coming of the Lord, but here are two more illustrations that speak to the way that we need to be ready. Not sleeping as others do, but awake. Not drunk as those who get drunk, but sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But we are not of the night. We are children of the light and of the day. Again, these are illustrations. We do not need to sleep, but we need to stay awake and alert. We do not get drunk, but we stay sober. You know, one of those illustrations might be a little bit more literal than the other. And I think you know which one I'm talking about. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about one of those, I just pray that you would respond. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 18, Paul says very similar things to this. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then this text leads right into the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, which Paul references again here in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, saying that two pieces of armor that we are to wear is the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, because those two pieces of armor guard your heart and your mind, which are often threatened in this world. Now, I sense that I have no need to say anything else to you this morning about the coming of the Lord and how that will be like a thief and how the word and the spirit 
have already said to you what you need to do. You need to be awake. You need to be sober. The Lord Jesus is coming quickly. So have your armor on and stand firm in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Continuing on, verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. How thankful I am that I am not destined for wrath because I have trusted in Jesus. There will be wrath poured out upon those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why I believe that the church will not endure through the tribulation, which is a time where God's wrath will be poured out. Because the way I read it, there is wrath poured out in these last days, and we are not destined for wrath. Wrath is for those who have not obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, can be obtained today if you haven't. If you haven't come to Christ, you ought to because God appointed for his son to die for sin. To absorb God's wrath is what God was doing when he crushed his son on the cross. Jesus became a sin-bearing substitute for mankind so that we would never have to taste the wrath of God towards sin. This happened when Jesus died, and since Jesus died on a cross, he is drawing all people to himself. Jesus is drawing you to him so that you can obtain salvation. So if you do not accept Jesus, which is God's wrath-absorbing sacrifice, that means that the coming wrath will be left for you to endure on your own. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I look out, I see a room full of Christians, and, and we're all here, we're saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. But if you haven't come to Christ, I'm just telling you, can, can we just get a big amen to say that Jesus not only saves us from, from our sin in this life, but also in the wrath of, to come, that Jesus has been our escape. Amen? amen. Okay. Amen. Now, Jesus received all of God's wrath towards sin for us on the cross. Choose wisely. Do not choose foolishly who you look to for salvation. It's in him. Therefore, in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who work through the Apostle Paul to give us these things in the Word of God for our encouragement and for our building up, that these truths are for us to use, and I believe that this is what we're doing. Now, as we end here, and that's not like a true end, that's like now we're done talking about the second coming, now we're going to talk about the rest of these verses, and there's some good stuff in here. This is where Paul's not going to rattle off these one-sentence instructions, so, so, Be prepared for Christ's coming because he could come back before I finish this message today. But while we're waiting for the Lord, let's see how we need to be living today. And these one-sentence instructions are going to be helpful for us as we go out today and live for Jesus. Verses 12 through 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. 
So this is one of those scriptures where the pastor is supposed to talk about their role as a pastor and how the church is supposed to view them. So um, God's word says to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord to admonish you. Um, It actually says to very highly esteem them in love. And, and, you know, um, you guys do that. And, um, you know, a hardworking pastor who labors, especially in the word of God, I I find that there's just great love and great esteem in that. And I just want to thank you, church, for the way that you have loved me and the rest of our pastors for what we do here. We're really thankful. And um, as I started out in this book, I talked about how I want to be liked by you. (laughs) Um, And there might be times that you won't like me because of how I admonish you or how I speak the truth to you. And that word admonish means to give strong warning. And I always want to say what needs to be said, but I always want to say it in love because sometimes the work of preaching and teaching the truth of God is not always met with love and respect. The pastor of a church seeks to fulfill their role with hard work and with love and with great stewardship, but without any compromise on the truth of God's word. And so, again, I can speak on behalf of our pastors here, is that we feel a a deep sense of love and respect from this congregation. Uh, We feel very highly esteemed by you in love, and and that's a blessing, not only for for us, but I think also for you, because it says this in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You didn't laugh at that. My my pastor, David Guzik, who I esteem greatly in love and have deep respect for, says this about this. It's a zinger. If a Christian can't esteem and love their pastor, they should either get on their knees asking the Holy Spirit to change their heart or go somewhere else and put themselves under a pastor they do esteem and love. That's powerful. Why is this? Because the next part he says, be at peace among yourselves. See, when a congregation like us, and I I feel we're doing this, church, let's do it all the more. When a congregation is at peace among themselves and there's no conflict between the congregation and between the pastors and the leadership, That's healthy, that's right, that's good. It's when there's no respect for the leadership, no love for the leadership, and when the body is not at peace among themselves, that church gets nasty. Let's not be that church, amen? Amen. Verse 14 says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. Admonish the idle, a simpler way to say that is warn those who are lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted. Put courage into the heart of those who are struggling. Help the weak means there are people who sometimes need a little extra help in the church because of their weakness, whether that's physically or emotionally or spiritually, and then be patient with them all because we're to match the heart of the Lord for people. And it can be easy to get frustrated with lazy, struggling, weak people. 
Because sometimes people don't want to change. But with some good, loving, warning, encouraging, helping, and with plenty of patience, people do change. You've changed, haven't you? I've changed because of people taking this scripture seriously. Then verse 15, see that no one replays evil for evil, but always seek to do, do good to one another and to everyone. Seems simple enough, right? Hard to do. Christians, we do not repay evil for evil. We do not give out wrong for wrong. We always seek to do good even to those who do evil to us. Even to those who wrong us, we bless. We do good to one another, that's to believers, and to everyone, that includes unbelievers. And this is a lifelong pursuit filled with many moments in our lives where we'll have to confess to the Lord because we have not had his heart. Because the heart of the Lord is this, when they crucified him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And then verse 16 says, rejoice always. This is the second shortest verse in the Bible next to John eleven thirty five, 35, which is Jesus wept. It's only shorter because there's less letters in John 11. But it's interesting to think about these two shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept and rejoice always. Does that seem like a contradiction? Not if you're in Jesus. Because there's a time for rejoicing and there's a time for weeping. And always means always. Because as followers of Jesus, there is rejoicing even in our weeping. We can always have hope in our pain. Therefore, we can rejoice always. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. We know the importance of prayer. We're to pray always in every kind of way. Long prayers, short prayers, private prayers, public prayers, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, confession, petition, intercession. Prayer is as simple as talking to God, and yet you will always be learning how to do it. And then verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is some good instruction, isn't it? It's good. Because what thankfulness does, guys, is it opens up our heart wide to receive the blessings of God. We can thank God in all circumstances. We don't thank God for all circumstances because some circumstances are ooh, not fun. But in them all, we can thank him. In the good, the hard, the fun, the ugly, the messy, the chaotic, in all of it, we can have thankfulness for this is the will of God. That's the second time in this letter that Paul has said this is the will of God. Last week had to do with our sexual purity. I pray that you have been sanctified this week in that. And God's will for your sanctification, we're told, is that we would give thanks to him in all circumstances. So we could say then that giving thanks in all circumstances is what produces more and more sanctification in our lives, right? And then verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Whew. The spirit is like a flame. And his spirit has been, has been amazing in this church. The Holy Spirit has moved with power here. And the thing that makes me tremble is that we have an ability to quench that flame where 
by sin, self, drunkenness, sleeping, whatever it is, we can quench the Spirit. You can quench the Spirit in many different ways, but if we stay thirsty, if we realize continually our need for the Holy Spirit, and we ask Him to fan into flame always into this place, the Spirit-filled church, the Spirit-empowered church is the only church that I ever want to be a part of. And then verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. This is speaking about the New Testament gift of prophecy, which we do not despise, not here. And we test it. We always hold fast to what is the good. But in the New Testament gift of prophecy, there can be some element in which it is not, um, it is not consistent, perhaps, with God's word. And that's why it needs to be tested. And so one of the major things that we want to be aware of as a church is that if there is prophecy used in this church, which there is and there has been, in fact, there was a prophecy through a dream that happened last week that led to a person's salvation this week. And so that is alive and active in this church. However, what we understand is it must be tested. And so church, be wary of anyone who is going around who is not in submission the leadership is not in submission to the word of God because the prophets are subject to the prophets. And don't go around following somebody who's got some sort of secret thing on the side. Prophecy is good. We do not despise it, but we test it always holding fast to what is good. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. We're at the point now where it's like we get, we're getting this stuff, right? Abstain from every form of evil. And this is connecting us. You know, the second coming teaching in First Thessalonians is sandwiched between all of this practical teaching. Because when you're abstaining from every form of evil, that's what's preparing you for his coming. And so abstain from every form of evil. And then verse 23 to 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who calls, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So I don't know about you, but I'm in the point in the morning now where I have heard enough, I've said enough truth, you've heard enough truth. You've gotten a fire hose today. May the God of peace himself be with you today to sanctify you completely. Your whole being, your spirit, your soul, and your body so that you'd be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He's gonna do this, guys. Brothers, pray for us. Pray for me as I pray for you. Let's all pray for one another. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Maybe in our culture we'll give hugs, but there's a deep family love that's supposed to exist in our midst. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. We've done that in five weeks. We ripped through this letter. <laughs> we covered it all, and we keep, we, we've kept the oath of the Lord to actually read this letter, to actually learn from it, every little part of it. We haven't skipped over any of it, even the holy kissing part I talked about, until the day of the Lord comes. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And this book ends where we began, in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for the power of your word. God, let us be a church that is ready, that is awake, that is sober, 
And God, as we move into a time of communion worship, God, we, we reflect on your first coming, and that is going to prepare us for your second coming. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.